You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Good morning, and welcome to NSPS Radio Hour. Glad to have you joining us again today. This is your host, Kurt Sumner, as always. And today, um, I had the pleasure to inviting back for, I don't know, Chris, several times. I, I, I don't keep count, but... Um, Chris Klein is with me today. Uh, always interesting to talk to Chris. He has so many things going on and different types of things going on. And so I thought today, Chris, we just I'll just sit back and let you talk about Chris World and uh, see, see where that leads us. But uh, nonetheless, thanks for joining me today. I really do appreciate it. Well, I'd have to point out that Chris, Chris World is not always as exciting as you would make it out to be. There's a whole lot of sitting <laughs> in the library and doing research, so... Let's not make this into some mythical land that's uh, where everything is happy. <laughs> yeah, I think we all kind of live with that, don't we? That's for sure. Mm-hmm. But it's great to have you back. Uh, always interesting to talk about the things that are going on with you. And yeah, when we were having our kind of lead-up conversation over the past bit, you were you were talking about something that sounded really interesting to me. And, and of course, anytime you mentioned Don Wilson. I think it's interesting because I think Don's a really interesting guy. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know that you're beginning to do some work with him, and and uh, even I, I think he's got a new book out that we're probably going to talk about sometime during the show today. But what tell tell our audience about what you're what you're doing? Well, that's that is one of the more I would say exciting aspects of Chris World, if you want to call it that, because I'm going to be this November and December teaching with Don as part of SES, which is Surveyor's Educational Seminars. And he's put on a series of seminars in predominantly North Carolina and Tennessee for quite a few years now. And he, in turn, essentially inherited SES, I suppose you could say, from Dr. Ben Buckner. And so Don's been doing this forever, and he's very much a, a fixture, I think, in Tennessee and North Carolina. And last year he invited me to come on board with him with SES and I've been you know working I would say to to earn the privilege of actually being Don's protege and that was something that that was incredibly important to me that he thought that I was good enough to tag along with him if you understand me it's uh, he's got so much more experience than I do but you know he also can't keep doing this forever and ever nobody can and so I I'm very much looking forward to working with him, and he's a good friend. He's been a friend for seven or eight years now that we've been corresponding and getting together. But that's SES Seminars is is his baby, and I think it'll be very, very fun and hopefully something new for the students as well to have a, a different instructor coming in. What we'll be doing this year actually is taking alternate days, each SES setup in the various towns that we go to, is generally two full days of instruction. And so this year I'll be doing one day and Don will be doing the other day. And so that'll, you know, give him a little bit of a break and and bring me into the process while still having him there if, quite frankly, if somebody has a, an odd question that uh, that I can't answer, particularly if it's something to do with easements, that's, that's his department. So, Yeah, you mentioned, uh, I don't think I had actually realized I knew about... SES, but I don't 
if I if I realized that I'd forgotten it in my old age, but I hadn't remembered that that was something that came along from Ben. Um, some of our listeners will remember Ben. He's he's been deceased now for several years, but he was one of those one of those steady guys too. I don't know if that's the right terminology, but uh, did, did a lot of good work. And of course, well, I can't say he founded it necessarily, but perhaps he did. But he was certainly strong in the development of the surveying program at East Tennessee State. Uh, that's my understanding too, and I, I've unfortunately come on the scene too late to actually. I did. I never got to meet Doctor Buckner when he was alive, but everything I read, it sounds like he was a real character. And I say that. In, I say that with admiration. He was a an interesting person, but also it appears very driven to, you know, to research and just to never give up and, and constantly be learning more. And I think that's probably one of the things that allowed him and, and Don Wilson to get along, because Don's the same way. He just never, ever quits on research. He's never satisfied that he knows enough. And he and I tend to share that that particular view of, of researching and teaching and writing. <clears throat> Excuse me. One of the things about Ben that was kind of neat was when you were in one of his sessions, he was very detailed and very on point um, and, and meticulous in his presentations. So one would derive from that perhaps that he wasn't as much of a fun guy as he was other times, <laughs> but he he was just a really really good person. Um, he, I wish you had been able to know him because he was one of those really great people that we owe, we owe a lot to in our profession and oftentimes don't recognize that we do. And a lot of people didn't get to know him like because he's been gone now for a while. Mm-hmm. You were talking about the successor thing with uh, with Don. See, in that connotation, if some if somebody like Don Wilson approaches you and and there's a some perspective or concept of being a successor, then there there's a lot to be um, thrilled about there. On the other hand, when the NSPS leadership starts asking me, have I developed a succession plan for my departure? I'm not sure how to take that exactly. <laughs> in other words, are they trying to get rid of you? I, that I cannot answer. <laughs> And I can tell you quite honestly that my goal is not to get rid of Don Wilson, nor is it to supplant Don Wilson. First of all, I can't tell fishing stories. <laughs> I, I don't I don't fish, so there is no way in the world I'm ever going to replace him in that respect. But, yeah, but you know, like but in all, all of us, series, eventually, yeah. <laughs> eventually that will happen. I think one of, the, one of the things that works well between Don and I is that we've had our studies to some degree, have focused in different areas. You you know him well enough to know that he is the guy, if you have a question about easements. He's forgotten more about easements than I know. And I, on the other hand, when I started in researching and publishing and teaching, I got fascinated with unwritten rights, with adverse possession, with estoppel, with ac- you know, acquiescence, and other unwritten modes of title transfer, part performance of an oral contract. And so he tells me that last year when he was doing the SES class, the people kept asking him, why don't you do a class on unwritten rights? Why don't you do a class on adverse possession or acquiescence? And Don basically said, wait till next year, I'm going to let Chris do it. And so, you know, our skills kind of complement each other where I'm the weakest, he's the strongest, and vice versa. Not that I really think he's what I would call weak anywhere when it comes to you know, boundary retracement and legal aspects. 
but but he hasn't been living and breathing unwritten rights like I have for the last eight years. So there there is right. that difference, and we work we work well together. And in that kind of, that kind of collaboration, it works really well because you do have I won't say different strengths, but perhaps somewhat different focus. And uh, and it also I think is is good when you're when you come as a team or have the capability to to be as a team. Um, I think that's sometimes good for the for the attendees as well because um, they they have an opportunity to hear from different personalities and different perspectives and you know at the same time the overall message is is somewhat unified but I think I think that's a good thing I, I'm mm-hmm. sure you guys are really going to enjoy doing that. Well, and he's he's an absolute trip to spend time with. We were both by chance we were both at the West Virginia convention this year. And because it, it turned out to be very convenient all the way around, I agreed to pick him up at the airport and ride him up from Jaeger Airport in Charleston up to the venue and back. That way he didn't have to get a rental car. But what that meant was that Don and I were both in the front seat of the car for the trip up and for the trip back. And it was only like maybe an hour and a half. But I can tell you now from personal experience, if you have Don in the passenger seat, you do not need books on tape because you will... <laughs> You'll have somebody to talk to, and it'll be very entertaining. We we had a fun time. And the path you took um, had its own uh, interesting uh, sights to see going up to Flatwoods. Um, I've when I've gone out there to the Flatwoods, I've gone the other way. I've gone through out out 68 in, in Western Maryland and down by Morgantown and back through the mountains that way. Mm-hmm. But uh, that's an interesting ride from from that end, and I'm assuming it is the other way too. Oh, yeah. Well, West Virginia is beautiful. I've got family from West Virginia. I always like hanging out back there. They're a good bunch. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely are. And they've, they've got a really good society, too. Oh, they're, they're very active. Don and I both had a good time there. We were, I guess you'd say technically we were competing, but he had a full classroom and I had a full classroom and everybody had a good time. And, uh, not much to complain about there. Yeah, and you you know you don't necessarily hear a lot about or from the the society necessarily like sometimes you do others, but they're they're really effective in the things they do. They they have a a, a really good record of dealing with their legislature on issues and being active and and always related to the profession. I, I've always been impressed with what they do. Mm-hmm. I don't know. You probably know more about them on the, the legislative front than I do. But from what I've seen of the West Virginia membership, they're always very enthusiastic and very eager to learn. And I've, I've never had a problem with going there. It's a little rough around the edges, but that's West Virginia for you. And that's just a fun bunch of people. Well, just I have to ask, though, what, how was your weather this year? Last time I was there, it was like zero and snow on the ground. <laughs> it was 70 degrees. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, it was very pleasant. I I have to say that my travel this year for convention season was very 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 forgiving. I went up to New York in January and I was right up the snow belt near the Canadian border and it rained. And I thought this is wonderful because it wasn't snowing. Yeah, it's been a, an interesting winter all around, that's for sure. I uh mm-hmm. I got to use my new snowblower last year with uh, almost 4 feet of snow we had at that one point in January, but um, not so much this year. But even, uh, the way I looked at it was with my snowblower is if I never use it again, 
I would never, I, I didn't pay enough for it that it doesn't override any of the hospital bills I would have had trying to shovel out from under 40 inches of snow. So it can sit in my garage forever, and I will still have uh, done well in, in purchasing it last year. Well, I was told when I was up in Maine that if you live in that part of the country, you have three snowblowers because one is the one you're using, one is the one that's in the shop, and the other one is broken waiting to go in the shop. So technically, you have three. Now, that's just what I was told. I don't know how true it is. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised. That, not at all. That's for sure. Have you gotten to visit with Don up at his place, or do you just see him other fo- other places? Not yet. As a matter of fact, I was supposed to get to see him a year ago, and then there was a snow event, and I didn't get by there. I should mention, by the way, before I forget, he specifically asked me to pass on his good wishes to you, because I know he considers you a friend, Kurt. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah, Don is a great friend, uh, and we've had lots of opportunities to be around each other at conferences and get to know each other a bit. And uh, like you, I have a tremendous amount of respect for him. I just think he's a super guy. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I'm, we, we're talking about Don as though everybody listening to us probably knows who he is. But And, and I'd be surprised if they don't. <laughs> but uh, he's, he's just done tremendous work over the years. And um, I guess he's probably scaled back somewhat on his nationwide tours that he's done over, over time. But. He's, he's scaling back a certain amount, but I'd have to point out that his idea of scaling back, most people would consider, like, just going flat out. His idea of scale back <laughs> is not everybody else will scale back. Not not the same terminology, huh? No, I got an email from him, like, 20 minutes yeah. before the class. He's like, I found this great thing. By the way, I have blown right through our first break, Chris. We need to go take that. We'll, we'll okay. be back in just a couple of minutes. All right. Got a Shonsted locator you're no longer using? Want to help a young surveying student? Donate it to an NSPS-recognized surveyor education program by shipping it, at no cost to you, to Shonsted. The factory will refurbish it to like new condition and send it on to a deserving institution. Pass your locator down the line and build on your surveyor legacy. Go to www.shonsted.com slash NSPS for details. This is Skip Coriel host of the Home Defense Show on America's Web Radio. Join me every week for a full hour of all the best and latest information on how you can get the skills and equipment you need to protect the ones that you love. Quick Stakes is your answer to staking. Lightweight, easy to ride on, easy to use, easy to find, and won't break your back carrying them like the old-fashioned wooden stakes. Have you tried a sample? If not... Get a pen and paper and write down this number, 800-438-0387, or go to quickstake.com, that's Q-U-I-K-S-T-A-K-E.com, and order your samples. Ask your surveying supply dealer for quickstakes today. Attention surveyors, Seanstead announces the Maggie, the next-generation magnetic locator. The Maggie combines the best features of two flagship Seanstead products, the sensitivity and precision of the GA52CX and the visual display and single-handed operation of the GA92XT. Contact your dealer for details or go to www.seanstead.com. Seanstead, the best just got better. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Speaking of 
going around different places, uh, Chris, and I know you've been traveling some already, but you got some, some other things coming up pretty soon. I know you're going to be out in Arizona in May and then later on in Georgia. Um, tell us about the, the Arizona trip. Uh, that one's that one's always going to be interesting. I get I get intrigued when I get to the southwestern states, among other things, because you get a lot of the Latin American influence on their property law, and it's on the one hand the class itself. I'm doing no when to hold them, which is I guess you could say on the one hand it's one of my oldest classes, but it keeps getting rebuilt for every state, so it never gets boring, and that to me is is one of the fun parts about traveling around the country is teaching is, is just learning a new state and trying to figure out, go in there and say, okay, well, we've got some basic rules that are pretty widespread. Now, what makes Arizona unusual? And one of the big ones is the effects, like the community grants versus the individual grants. That comes from the Spanish common law. And it's, it's really, really different to do know when to hold them in a PLSS state. And I know there's there's people that kind of go, wow, well, he's from a colonial state. There's no way he can teach this out here. But I go in to the state that I'm going to be teaching in, and then I research that state. Because it's fairly close to New Mexico, I'm going to do a, a secondary focus on New Mexico. It's going to be taught in Tucson. But I ended up doing the, the class ended up using about 150 slides that are directly from Arizona case law. And as a result, I feel like it's going to be a new class and a new challenge, both for me and for the students. I always, I always look at these things and I think, I'm going to go in there and I'm going to be the guide and I'm going to show them this stuff and we're going to start a discussion. But, you know, when I come back from the trip, I'm going to know things about Arizona that I didn't know when I walked in because you've got, say, 100 surveyors in the room, and they're going to know things about Arizona law that I don't. That's just inevitable. So it's it's the combination for me of kind of keeping an open mind and then also doing the research where I'm going, and I think that's what makes the class really work. Do you, When you're doing your research in today's world, are you able to do a good part of that without actually having to travel, or do you have to go there and pick through things like we used to do in the old days? <laughs> well, I do a lot of research at the library. I go to the UNCA library in Asheville and do a lot of the research there because they have some search engines available that are not available to me privately. But in order to do that, I actually have to go use the, the terminals at the library. That gets a little tricky because the students are on them during the early part of the day, and I try real hard not to interrupt the students who need those machines for their homework. So I end up going on Saturdays and nights and the times, you know, spring break when they're all gone and try to do a lot of it then. So I assume from that you can find pretty much whatever you're looking for, uh, at least from the perspective of what's on the record, I guess. Um, do, you ha do you have ways to... to sort of get into the mindsets? I mean, I know you do that during your workshops and everything, but do you have any sense about that beforehand? I mean, I, I guess this goes back to you were talking about it being such a learning experience for you as well, but I was just curious if you had any opportunities to to learn anything other than just what's in the, in the libraries before you go. Um, most of what I'm doing is, 
is straight library research, but it's also coming from a variety of sources. There are old law review journals I can find from whatever part of the country I'm dealing with. You know, an awful lot of the major state law schools also have a law journal, and that I, I can get access to those. So sometimes I get perspectives of local authorities who are studying a specific law or a specific problem or a new statute that's been enacted. So you can get you can get a flavor for the state that way, but you also get a lot of it from reading the case law itself. You you find that the judges will go off on these discourses about the way things are in Arizona, the way things are in Montana or where, wherever you happen to be. When I taught the class in Wyoming last year, and I was teaching a segment on prescriptive easements, there were comments in there like. Here in the West, we do things differently from the way they do it back East. I mean, the judges would say this in the case law. So you're finding out what the differences are. And then, of course, there's there's just the basic mechanical differences. Looking at the way the judges are applying the common law in the various states, and you definitely do see variations where they just say, okay, in Massachusetts they do it that way, but we're not going to do that here. And so... There, there is that method of of getting into the mindsets of of the people who are there. It sometimes kind of shines through in the case law. And I would suspect that having that research done, and then going into the classroom with whatever number of people you were saying is in each class, uh, you're going to then hear the the current version of how people perceive those kind of things, and how and maybe even get uh, feedback from them on their practical applications, and that, that must create some really interesting dialogue. Oh, absolutely. When, uh, when I did Texas last year and we talked about gradient boundary lines, now, on the one hand, it, was, it turned out to be a great topic for Texas because it was a very hot issue at the time because they're having a dispute over property titles along the Red River, and it has to do with the gradient boundary surveys in Texas. And that's a unique variation on the doctrine that basically is unique to Texas. So on the one hand, the students were pleased that I had found it and that I was aware of it in the first place. But then we had all this discussion and we had a lot of like current events and it turns out that the Texas surveyors were sending some sort of a letter of contempt to, to the state authorities because they had a, an opinion on how the boundary should be retraced. So it became a very educational experience for me too even though I had the basics from the U.S. Supreme Court rulings, I didn't have all the details that those people had. So it was, it was a give and take there. Yeah, we actually, um, at our spring conference last year, um, one, of the, one of the folks who was there for, one, for a session was, um, has been working on that whole Red River thing. Um, do you know who Davey Edwards is? Uh, name rings a bell, but that's all. Davey's He's a Texas surveyor, and, and he's been really active in, I think it's the Red River side um, that he's been involved in. Um, but it's these same kinds of issues that you're talking about. And so I, I would have to think, I, I know in my own personal situation, when I've gone in to have conversations with people about whatever the topic is, whether it's something related to certainly nothing as detailed as what you get into, I, I'm too scatterbrained and schizophrenic to talk about things that you have to really study. But 
but when I whatever the topic is, um, the best part of the whole thing is when you get people talking to you mm-hmm. and, and giving their feedback and get discussions going and even get discussions going among themselves. <laughs> but I just love that because I I'd love to get people intera- interacting and and I know you do too. Oh yeah, there have been a couple of occasions that you know. The, Teaching a class, to me, teaching is a learning curve. It's an art form, and you never you never have a perfect class. You always look back and you think, well, I could have done this different, or I could have altered the focus here. But but when I get a discussion going and half the classroom is arguing with the other half, sometimes I just kick back a minute and let them go at it and you know, see <laughs> yeah. if there's any sort of a consensus that would emerge. And I think that's definitely part of the teaching process. It's not just about me standing up there running my mouth all day. It's, it's about getting people, getting in people's minds and actually getting them interested. And, you know, one of the one of the best comments I ever had on a class, one of the best compliments, and the guy didn't know that I heard him. I was standing in the hall and these two surveyors during break, they had their backs to me. They didn't know I was there. And one guy said to the other, you know, this class is going by really fast. And I thought, wow, that's great. <laughs> that's what you always hope for, that people think it goes fast. <laughs> Just like this radio show, actually. <laughs> if you can still see the hands in the air at 4.30 in the afternoon when the class is supposed to quit at 5, then that's that's the goal. You know, people still have questions instead of checking their watches and folding up their notes and getting ready to head for the beer. I know in the, in the notes you sent me, you were talking about statutes of limitations and their... I don't know if variations are the right term uh, related to your to your Arizona case, but maybe you can talk about that a little bit. No, it just it just the some of the oddments that came up to me when I was researching Arizona. One of them was that they have three different statutes of limitations, which is not unique. But one of them is only three years. It's a that's a rather short end of the spectrum for a statute of limitations for real property when you consider you can go to New Jersey and they have one for 60 years. So you have this huge variation in the statutes of limitations and this class, it's kind of an overview so it ends up hitting on several different topics and one of them is adverse possession which is my favorite signature topic if you will. But in addition to just pulling up the statutes, I like to find some of the odd information that I know people are wondering about, like, you know, claims against the state or questions of when the title actually vests and mistaken beliefs, you know, can you win adverse possession when you don't know you're on the land, things like that. It's um, one of my problems. I have to be very careful when I teach know when to hold them because the adverse possession segment is only supposed to be about an hour long. But if I'm not careful, it turns into the whole afternoon, and then we don't get to easements. <laughs> I, I can see exactly how that would happen for sure because that, that's one that everybody likes to likes to delve into. Well, you mentioned the, the community versus individual grants. I, a lot of people, including me, may not grasp exactly what that is. Tell us a little bit about that. Uh not a not a huge amount of information that I can give you straight from memory. I've got more information in my notes. But basically, under the Spanish system of granting land, and of course this was Arizona as part of you know Spain and then Mexico before it was part of the United States, a lot of those grants were made legitimately 
by the Spanish government or the Mexican government, and they had a system, sort of a two-tiered system, where they would grant lands to a community as opposed to other lands that would be granted to a specific individual. And so you've really got that dichotomy in how the land was granted out that doesn't seem to be as prevalent. I haven't seen much of it under the British common law system, but when you get to the southwest United States, you see a lot of that. And I had no, you you commented in your question, you said you had no idea it existed. Neither did I until I started researching the southwestern states. It's just a, a different uh, a different system. And because the property rights were created under a legitimate previously existing government, in many cases, not always, but in many cases, those property rights would then be recognized when the United States came in and took over sovereignty of the state. I don't want to break in, but we're going to have to go on break if I'm staying on schedule. So let's do that, and we'll be right back. Okay. Attention surveyors. Seanstead announces the Maggie, the next-generation magnetic locator. The Maggie combines the best features of two flagship Seanstead products, the sensitivity and precision of the GA52CX and the visual display and single-handed operation of the GA92XT. Contact your dealer for details or go to www.seanstead.com. Seanstead, the best just got better. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. Quick Stakes is your answer to staking. Lightweight, easy to ride on, easy to use, easy to find, and won't break your back carrying them like the old-fashioned wooden stakes. Have you tried a sample? If not, get a pen and paper and write down this number, 800-438-0387, or go to quickstake.com, that's Q-U-I-K-S-T-A-K-E.com, and order your samples. Ask your surveying supply dealer for QuickStakes today. Got a Seanstead locator you're no longer using? Want to help a young surveying student? Donate it to an NSPS-recognized surveyor education program by shipping it, at no cost to you, to Seanstead. The factory will refurbish it to like new condition and send it on to a deserving institution. Pass your locator down the line and build on your surveyor legacy. Go to www.seanstead.com slash NSPS for details. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. And we're back with Chris Klein. Uh, interesting conversation with Dave during the break there, uh, based on his, his property he owns out in that part of the of the world. So that's always cool. I don't get get to hear those conversations when we're off off uh, air there. So that was that was really neat to hear your conversation with with David about the topic we're discussing today. Uh, you were talking uh, about all your research for your Arizona. Uh, appearance and uh, it was interesting that you noted uh, in your notes to me that while you were doing some of that research uh, you found out after the fact that uh, a lot of that details included in in Don Wilson's latest book which leads me up to the fact that you're writing a new book 
<laughs> wow, I can't figure out which which question to answer first. There, <laughs> take your choice. <laughs> the, it, it did amuse me that when I've got a copy of, of Don's latest book, and when I was looking through it, I saw that he had devoted a lot of time to a specific Arizona case it's called Wacker v. Price, and it's a good retracement case. And I had found it in the course of my research because one of the things I like to do looking around the country is see how much effect Justice Thomas Cooley's opinions have had in the various states. Now, Cooley was a Michigan Supreme Court judge, but uh, a lot of the, the listeners are aware of the fact that Cooley's writings and the significance of his writings have spread far beyond the state of Michigan. So I was searching Arizona case law for references to Cooley. And it showed up in this Wacker v. Price case from Arizona. And I started reading it. It's like, wow, this is a great case. So I built a case study out of it to use in Arizona. And then after I built the case study for my Arizona class, then I went back and was reading his book. And it's like, wow, Don used the same case. (laughs) So sometimes we end up just kind of researching on parallel lines, depending on, on how things go, but he'd obviously found it, I suppose, probably a year before I did because he'd already put it in his book. So when when you guys get to talking about all these common things that you're looking at, uh, do you find the occasion to uh, have discussions where you might have different opinions about it, or do you uh, pretty much agree? It happens very occasionally, and I, I would have to emphasize very occasionally, but now, one of the things I've always liked about working with Don is he doesn't ever hit me over the head with the, well, I'm Don Wilson and I'm right and you're wrong. <laughs> That's not the way he works with me. So if we have a disagreement, I pull out my case law and he pulls out his case law and we start analyzing it, and, and usually it becomes apparent that one or the other of us is right. And right. it's usually him. But <laughs> <laughs> but that's okay. But I've been right once or twice, you know, it's, it's nice to have some variation there. But, yeah, I mean, it's when we disagree, we just start pulling out the data and try to find out who has the better information backing his position. And that's Would, Wouldn't we like to live in a society, uh, and particularly in our profession, where that was the result when people have differing opinions, that you follow that path to getting resolution rather than what sometimes seems to happen? Well, I, yeah, I would have to agree with you. I feel like it's always better to look at the information and then try to make a reasonable reasonable decision based on the data, the best available data that you've got. I found a case, it was a Maryland case that I used when I was up in Lenticum, but it was really interesting because there were three surveyors involved, and it was a tricky dispute, and one surveyor who had a different opinion, during the course of the early stages of the litigation, he restudied the data, and he realized he was mistaken. And he said as much in the case. He said, I had to analyze additional data, and I realized I have to change my opinion. Okay, that's good. Rather than just digging in and being stubborn when you don't have a leg to stand on. Yeah, I'd, and I agree with that that philosophy. My my reaction, I've said this before on the show, I'm sure, but when still practicing and when I came across an issue where there was a question in my mind of, of 
where, where's the right answer, and I look at what other people's work has revealed, my reaction was always to talk to them and try to find out what they knew that I didn't know. Because obviously yeah. there was something they knew that I didn't know, or we that we wouldn't have the the differing opinion. Now, the phrase I picked up a long time ago, and I don't recall exactly where I got it now, but to have the surveyor look at the constellation of evidence—that's actually one of the topics I, I go into a little bit in the in the Arizona class coming up. But the broader the net that you cast, the more likely you are to find the correct answer. And over and over, when you look at the cases where surveyors are involved, you see some surveyors leaving no stone unturned and finding all the available data, and then you see other surveyors who just say, well, I found this and I found that tin and I'm done. And it's not hard to guess, usually, which surveyor is more likely to prevail, and that's a surveyor who has really done an exhaustive analysis, both in the document research and in the field research and in the analysis rather than just a, sort of a quickie, half-baked survey. So with this new book, um, if I'm understanding it correctly, you're, instead of looking at a, a regional perspective or a local perspective, you've done a bunch of research to try to find more information, for, maybe from a, a national scope, so to speak. Yeah, the, the latest one that I just came out with is how to fix a boundary line, and that one just became available December 20th, so it's pretty much brand spanking new. And some of the readers, some of the listeners, I should say, may be familiar with the fact that I did a book on adverse possession in 2013, but that one was restricted to the eastern states. And this time I wanted to do a book that really had a national scope and try to look at the various doctrines, particularly some of the more confusing doctrines, such as acquiescence, such as practical location, and try to look at a national scope and say, here's a general overview, but then start doing individual case studies on individual states and see what the, the state courts have done with them. The, the more I teach, both the more I teach and the more I write, the more I feel like I want to do case-by-case, state-by-state studies of the individual doctrines, because you really never quite know what the judges in that state are going to do with some of this stuff until you actually dig in and find out. So, you know, with acquiescence, for example, I found five different definitions for acquiescence. The same term, and yet depending on where you're at and what the circumstances are, they're going to apply a different definition. So that was pretty much my goal with the, with the latest book, was to find an overview and say this is the possibility then start highlighting states that had a lot of case law on that particular issue and say, look at all the possibilities. And I ended up managing to get case law from virtually every state in the union in there to some degree. Now, a couple of them are you know, more heavily represented than others, but I really wasn't trying to make an eastern state book or a southern Gulf Coast book. I wanted to go all over the country. That must have taken a quite a, uh, a bit of research and and, were, and again were you able to find a lot of the information you needed to know through your your research like at, at uh, UNC Asheville or did you have to go other even if online did you have to go other places uh, it was it was research from a few sources and yes you, you know going to the library at UNCA was certainly a major factor but I was finding stuff. I was having people send me stuff. One of the one of the funner things about traveling and teaching is you meet people, 
And then after you get back, you start getting these emails from people that say, look what I found, or look at this historical document. I scanned it and I sent it to you. So, so people send me stuff, and sometimes it finds its way in to either later classes or the books as well. I don't, there's, there's no such thing as, as ever knowing everything. So you're just constantly collecting more data and trying to keep track of it and trying not to lose it, which is tricky. But, no, there, there were a lot of different sources going into that. Well, you, you mentioned, uh, to some degree, Don also has, a, I think, a new book or a newer book. He's on his boundary retracement book. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that before the break. Oh, yeah. He's, uh, as a matter of fact, his and mine came out within about, well, within a few weeks of each other because the first copies that he received were while we were together in West Virginia. That was, I, I don't mind saying this, I got the first copy of his new book out of the first box that he opened because I was standing next to him when he opened up the box and he said, they shipped us the new books. And he looked in the box, and he reached in, and he grabbed one, and he handed it to me. So I got copy number one. I was going to say, but, I hope you memorialize that somehow. <laughs> oh, yeah, and he signed it. <laughs> Absolutely. But um, now he's got, it's like over 400 pages, and, I mean, it's a piece of work. It goes into, he's got a whole section on following footsteps, you know, exactly whose steps do you follow. He's got like 40 pages on that. Um, separate sections on reconciling sources of error in old surveys. He's got a section on title issues, a big section on corners, monuments, lines, all sorts of good stuff. I mean, it's great retracement stuff. And I I, <laughs> I think I checked out about 440 pages. So it's it's a major piece of work. The, the West Virginia uh, membership there were the first ones to be the beneficiaries of his latest book coming out. I know he sold quite a few. So, so was his session there on, on this topic, on this book? I'm trying to remember what he was teaching. I'm not honestly sure because he was busy in his room and I was busy in my room. We weren't sure. collaborating. We were just there at the same time. It's it's uh, encouraging and uh I don't know if gratifying is the right way, certainly laudatory, to think about having done the kind of things that Don has done for all these years and that you've been doing now for some amount of time, and just the fact that you still have that strong desire to find new things, to, to research new things, to, to talk about and research and help other people understand. That, that takes a lot of um, grit, I think, <laughs> to, to be or, able to maintain that enthusiasm. I was going to say stubbornness, uh, um, but anyway, I, I don't know if you ever read the old Calvin and Hobbes comic strip. With yes. The little, the little kid, Calvin, he, he pretends sometimes that he's Spaceman Spiff and he flies around the universe in search of weirdness. Mm. And I, I think this is like a grown-up version of that. Some people would say it's not <laughs> even that grown-up. But, yeah, it's just like with 50 states and all the different topics, that I can teach and other topics that I'd like to teach that I just haven't had a chance to research yet, that there's 50 states full of weirdness. And one thing I always kind of have to be careful with, because I'll come into a teach a state that I haven't done before, and I'll say, no, this is really weird. And then the next thing I want to say is, don't feel bad, because every state is weird in some respect. There's always something just kind of cockeyed or a little odd or something that you just haven't seen anywhere else. 
So when I say your state is weird, I'm saying, okay, that and the other 49. Yeah, so it's it's a common thing. Well, we are 10 seconds out from our, our last break, so we'll go do that. And I want to talk about your next project when we come back. So okay. we'll spend some time on that. Let's go to break now. Got a Shonstead locator you're no longer using? Want to help a young surveying student? Donate it to an NSPS-recognized surveyor education program by shipping it, at no cost to you, to Shonstead. The factory will refurbish it to like new condition and send it on to a deserving institution. Pass your locator down the line and build on your surveyor legacy. Go to www.shonstead.com slash NSPS for details. Whether cruising the strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. Quick Stakes is your answer to staking. Lightweight, easy to ride on, easy to use, easy to find, and won't break your back carrying them like the old-fashioned wooden stakes. Have you tried a sample? If not, get a pen and paper and write down this number, 800-438-0387, or go to quickstake.com, that's Q-U-I-K-S-T-A-K-E.com, and order your samples. Ask your surveying supply dealer for quickstakes today. Attention surveyors, Seanstead announces the Maggie, the next generation magnetic locator. The Maggie combines the best features of two flagship Seanstead products, the sensitivity and precision of the GA52CX and the visual display and single-handed operation of the GA92XT. Contact your dealer for details or go to www.seanstead.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. So, Chris, I guess now that how to fix a boundary line is out and for sale, and you're just going to sit around now for the next couple of years and wait till the next thought to come in your head. I know that's not true. You don't work. You don't work that way. That was a facetious statement. But um, I know you're always thinking, and you got other things. Uh, the next thing you want to look at. So, talk to us about that. Well, that was. I got the idea for the fourth book while I was working on the third book because I'd done a lot on adverse possession and I hadn't really hit on prescriptive easements. And one of the things that's been percolating through my head is I need to start paying more attention to easements, you know, servitudes, covenants, that sort of thing. And by the way, I told this name keeps coming up, but I told Don Wilson, I said, you know, I'm starting to get interested in easements. And he gave me one of those looks that's like, what took you so long? And uh, <laughs> which he's known they were fascinating for thirty plus years, and I'm you know I've just started tripping over weird cases on various types of easements, and I did a couple articles, and it's just like it's it's like he said on occasion the difference between knowing it and understanding it. It's like technically I knew that easements were complicated. And then I started looking at it, and all of a sudden I go, wow, this is just crazy complicated. So I want to start getting into easements, and I think I'm going to do a book on, at first I was going to call it, you know, just do prescriptive easements itself, but then I started wanting to broaden the scope a little bit. 
and say, what is the effective prescription on easements? Now, it sounds like I just said the same thing, but I didn't, because prescription can have an effect on record easements, such as extinguishment of a record easement by prescription, and that's a whole separate problem. So after I talked to you, and I told you I was kind of thinking about a book on prescriptive easements, I started building a table of contents just for fun, and my original idea was that it was going to be a short book, and now I think it's going to turn into a at least medium-length book, or maybe a long book. I'm not sure. But, you know, after you get through the basics of prescriptive easement law and you say, well, I want to do a history of prescriptive easements, and then I want to look at the doctrine of ancient light and its effects, but then you start realizing how many different aspects of prescriptive easement law you have to look at. Last year, I built a class for Wyoming just on prescriptive easements, and they had all this stuff on gate. And so what's the significance of a gate on a, either extinguishing a prescriptive easement or extinguishing a record easement or extinguishing a prescriptive easement? Or, you know, is the gate locked? Is the gate locked and who has a key to the gate? Or is there a gate with a lock on there, but the lock is routinely left open? I mean, there's all this stuff in their case law of the effective gates on prescriptive easements. So... You know, and that's just one aspect. What about um, what about prescriptive easements and subterranean utilities? How do you prove open and notorious use when there's something underground that nobody can see and nobody is, knows is there? And that brings in the whole discovery rule issue. So there's just, you know, a, a truly incredible number of topics to go into this thing. I ended up coming with 11 sections without really having to strain. Wow. That's so, pretty amazing. I just, um, there's there's cases from Pennsylvania. Can you win a prescriptive easement for overhanging tree branches? Like, well, they're open and notorious, right? Well, and they're sort of a trespass. You know, <laughs> depending on how you look at it, that's, that's a very loose statement. It's crossing the line. Whether it's a trespass is another question. But... West Virginia had a case, and they put in there specifically this news news flash. They said, first of all, Pennsylvania has a lot of trees. And then they also said in the case, they said, trees grow. And I thought, okay, this is not rocket science here. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, this is not me. They wrote this down in the ruling. But the the question was, really, in Pennsylvania, are they going to create a prescriptive right every time a branch extends over a property boundary? So... That's that's a separate sort of problem. And what about tree roots? You know, there's another another variation of the same problem. If a if a beaver builds a dam, can it create a prescriptive right for irrigation? It's just the the possibilities are almost limitless here. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah, the, those are the kind of things that wouldn't necessarily be top of mind when you start thinking about this topic. But then when you mention them, you think, oh yeah. I can see where that might be an issue, um, mm-hmm. and you just all you have to do is go out in your backyard, <laughs> and you 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 can see it firsthand where exactly. those kind of things come about. And are, do you? Well, I guess you haven't done enough research yet to know, but I, I assume you're probably going to find cases where these issues have come up. Actually, in my files, I've already got cases where all this stuff has come up. It's real. It's out there now. Some of it is. 
I think the total research that I found on overhanging tree branches and prescriptive easement law, there were only like three states that had even addressed it. So it's not something you're going to find in the case law of all 50 states. Some of it's more common. Um, like that, that would kind of be a thing that would be a, a precedent, though, I assume. Exactly. You can't take, say, a Pennsylvania case and say absolutely that it's going to be applied in Arizona, but if you have three other states and they've all agreed and that's the only case law out there, it's likely but not conclusive that the Arizona courts might go with the same principle. Actually, that's, uh, that's another one I re- researched recently. Talk about a case that has spread... It's called Castle Associates v. Schwartz, and it's out of New York. And it has to do with the question of how do you extinguish an easement by adverse possession? Because you definitely can in certain circumstances. But one of the basic premises of adverse possession is you have to do something actionable. How do you interrupt the use of a paper easement that's never been opened and never been used? How do you interrupt it if it's never been used? And the Castle Associates rule out of New York has been incorporated into the case law of like 15 jurisdictions across the country that I've been able to find so far. So a lot of this stuff, you you find a limited precedent, but then in the states that haven't either adopted it or rejected it, you're left with a little bit of a, of a gray area. You kind of have to say, this is likely what they would do, but... Um, with the Castle Associates rule, I found, like I said, about 15 states that have accepted it. I found one that rejected it, and that was Alaska. So you don't know until you go look. I'm just sitting here thinking how much perseverance and uh, being inquisitive is required to keep tracking these kind of things to as far as, far as you take them. I mean, you, you've come up with a concept here, and you found a case, and now you now you want to find out if it where else it's been found, and or or uh, even thought about. That's just amazing to me to be able to think of spending that that much effort to get something done. Um, I, I I have to applaud you for that because I'm not sure I have that kind of patience, or maybe patience isn't the right word. Perseverance, maybe, or. It, it just seems like an awful lot of work. Uh, it's work, but it's fun work. That was actually the Castle Associates rule was when I tripped over originally in Colorado and Wyoming. I was researching the prescriptive easement class for Wyoming last year. And so I found reference to Castle Associates from Montana, Wyoming, and Colorado. And then after that, I got curious, and I went and backtracked it to the original New York case, and then I tracked it forward to see where it had gone other than those three states where I essentially found it by accident. That's, it's, it's all very good and well to go research something that you know is there, and you think, oh, I'm going to research this topic. But then you hit stuff that you didn't know existed, and that's when it gets really fun. Well, I, I have to say that the, the surveying profession benefits from that perseverance and inquisitive nature of uh, people like Don and you and other others lots of other folks around the country that are doing research on things but you're gonna you're bringing to light directly to the the surveying population and that's when I say you I mean all of you 
um, that probably isn't going to occur to the the average guy who hasn't encountered any of these things and has no clue that there already may be some precedent in his or her state. Uh, It's just such a great benefit, I think, to be able to share this information with people all across the country and get their minds thinking because you know everybody's busy they're they're taking care of whatever's in front of them right now so this is a great service i think that you guys provide well i think it's and it's important for the long-term health of the profession because i don't like to i don't like to think of my classes as review material that's not what i'm out there to do the idea is to you know, move into new areas of knowledge and new disciplines and new variations of the discipline so that we remain relevant and remain important, you know, as as the law progresses and, and develops over time and society develops over time. We've got to we've got to keep up with that and that to me means we've got to expand and we've got to move out instead of just sitting on one spot doing the same thing we've always done. You know, there's, well, I think there's of course Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say, say, I say you that, make a... That's fine. <laughs> go ahead. I'll be quiet. Go ahead. That, that, you know, there's always the technological advances, and those are important also. So, you know, you hear people talking about using the UAVs for surveying and the mobile scanning units and all sorts of stuff. The technology is certainly a part of us moving into new areas. But to me, the technology without the specialized knowledge is, is a very short-lived advantage because technology is ephemeral. I mean, it just it keeps going. It keeps changing. It keeps evolving. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I think it's also important um, as a, a broader knowledge base that, that you guys are presenting to surveyors to think about. Sometimes, sometimes we get into, and, and I'm talking we generally in the general public here, not surveyors specifically, but we kind of get into that mindset that, well, here's this one one thing that people do, and, and they do it a particular way, and there's no other ramifications. But then again, you have all these other things that can come along, and for surveyors to be aware of that, in my mind, makes them much more valuable to for their public service. Yeah. Well, there's, there's one phrase that I've heard a couple of times in classes in various places that really hits my, my hot button, I guess you could say, and that is when somebody says, well, that's not the way it's done. <laughs> yeah. It's like, well, maybe it should be. You know, yeah. maybe we need to do something else. <laughs> exactly. Well, I, that has to be all exciting, and, and we're... 20 seconds out from the end of the show and it goes too quickly as it always does but I want to thank you for being with me today Chris it's been great we'll have to have a further conversation going down the road and I'm sure we'll we will do that all right thank you very much it's been great to have you I'll be looking forward to the the current book and the one coming out so take care and we'll talk sometime soon